Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. both online and in person. And then throughout the week we gather in small groups that meet in homes, uh, in, in coffee shops, online, wherever. And uh, it's always good to gather together. Now it is the Sunday before Christmas and it is Christmas sweater Sunday. So uh, in person, we're all wearing our Christmas sweaters. You could pause this, get a Christmas sweater on and join us. Tonight at 6 p.m., December 18th at 6 p.m. is our Christmas carol and communion service. It's about 40 minutes to an hour long. It's in person only. Uh, it is peaceful, it is beautiful, it's a family service. You can come out and sing some Christmas carols with us. As, as it's our functional kind of like Christmas Eve service and uh, it's really one of the highlights of the year. So love to see you there. Uh, inviting anyone and everyone, even if you, you know, say, hey, you know, it's not really my, uh, you know, I go somewhere else or do some other thing. This is open to everybody. Then next Sunday morning, December 25th, we will have Christmas in person, uh, but you don't have to be there. Normally, nine times out of ten, I say, yes, Christians should be actively part of a church family. Now, we have this online service, and we, we do as a church feel like you can be part of our church family and be online Sunday mornings. There's a lot of reasons why. People have jobs that require them to work on Sunday mornings. Uh, people have you know, stuff going on. We have small groups. Uh, to me, small groups are more important than Sunday mornings. I'm just going to say it. Small groups are more important than Sunday mornings, especially because you can get the Sunday morning online and then actively be part of a small group. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I stand on the whole thing. I believe Christians should actively be part of a church family in general. But I also think, hey, you know what? Christmas is on a Sunday. It doesn't happen that often. If you're with friends and family, if you're traveling, if you're just staying home with your family and saying we're just doing our normal Christmas traditions, totally cool, awesome. There is no pressure. So that's what's going on around the church. This Sunday today is Christmas Sweater Sunday. Tonight is our Christmas Carol and Communion service. Next Sunday morning, Christmas Day, we will have church, uh, casual family service at 10.30 a.m. And then the following Sunday, New Year's Day, we will have church. We will be meeting in the fellowship hall at church. Uh, we're gonna have some pancakes and bacon and hang out together. And uh, it's gonna just, look, we're all gonna be tired. We'll all have been staying up ringing in the new year. So we're just gonna hang out together as a church family New Year's Day. So that's the plan for the holidays. Today we're gonna to finish up our Christmas series and we've been looking at prophecies uh, concerning the coming of Jesus. And a couple weeks ago we looked at how it was prophesied that Jesus would be born a virgin. And last week we talked about how it was prophesied that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And today in Isaiah chapter nine, we will see how it was prophesied that he will be born a king. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God has humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Now these are tribes in the 12 tribes of Israel. In the past, he has humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in distress have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest time, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as the day and in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment soiled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. The situation was bleak, was dark, seemed hopeless. Physically, in the north of Israel, the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulon had been overrun. Naphtali's uh, region, uh, if you imagine Israel, the ancient kingdom of Israel divided into states, like America's divided into states, they had the 12 tribes. And Naphtali's area included what we think of as the region of the Galilee. The home of Jesus was in the historical region of the tribe of Naphtali. And Isaiah is describing this, this loss that these foreign nations, what we might think of as the Assyrian Empire, had come from the north and overrun the lands of these northern tribes. Israel itself was divided. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which included the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, and most of the Levites. But the northern kingdom has been overrun in parts and now is aligning itself with its own oppressors to come against the southern kingdom of Judah. Things seem bad. And we've been talking about this the last couple weeks. This same situation, this coming destruction. The situation is bleak. And spiritually, things are dark. Isaiah says that the people are walking in darkness. In his own day, in Isaiah's day, the northern tribes had just given themselves over to pagan worship, to idolatry, and to open rebellion to God. And the southern kingdom, while it still, you know, publicly professed faith in Yahweh, while the temple worship still happened in Jerusalem, the king, Ahaz, had established in the hidden places, in the high places, in the forest groves, he had established pagan worship. He had reinstituted human sacrifice. He, he had gone deep into debauchery and to the occult. Publicly, it all looked good. Publicly, he still professed faith in Yahweh, but privately, things were bad. The people walking in darkness, Physically, you know, in real world terms, things are bad. Spiritually, things are bad. The situation seems hopeless. 
but unto us a child is born. There is hope for the people in this coming child that will be born. This is not the first time Isaiah has talked about him. Uh, We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus being born of a virgin. Back in Isaiah chapter 7, he prophesied that there was coming one who would be born, would bring hope. This is not the first time the scripture has talked about this. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, as the enemy had deceived Adam and Eve and they had fallen under the curse of sin and death, but God said there will come one of your descendants who will crush the enemy. There is hope for us, for unto us a child is born. For unto us, who's the us? Well, in the first audience, the original audience, that's the people of Israel. Unto them, their Savior, their Messiah was born. And then we know, as most of us are not Jewish, right? Uh, my friend Andy, who uh, preached at Faith on Hill last spring, um, you know, he's, uh, he's Jewish, born Jewish, converted to Christianity, um, sees Jesus as his Messiah. Uh, but most of us aren't. Jesus extended the grace of God beyond the people of Israel to all who would believe. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. He says, the government will rest on his shoulders. That's good news. Remember, the people of Judah had a bad king who was failing them. The king of the northern kingdom of Israel had betrayed them. The king of their enemies, the Assyrians, was coming against them, and their own king was doing nothing. And here comes the promise of a ruler who will take the weight and the burden on himself and who will be able to stand it. Human beings always let us down. Always. Jesus has never let us down. His government will bring peace. This prophecy talks about Uh, the end of oppression. It talks about peace. It talks about the warrior's boots and robes and their equipment for war being burned away. There's no more need for it. Uh, There's another part in Isaiah's prophecies where he talks about swords being beaten into plows and, you know, the weapons of war being turned into the weapons of, of food production to feed the people. Right now, there is starvation because of war. What's going on in the Ukraine is leading to suffering in other parts of the world because the Ukraine and Western Russia are massive agricultural producers for the rest of the world. It's not just affecting one country or two countries, it's affecting people across the globe. But when Jesus establishes his kingdom, there will be no more need for that sort of suffering, no more cause for that sort of suffering. He will bring peace. Can I say that that story of peace is something that I feel like Americanism has weakened in my own faith. I'm not being anti-American. I'm being honest and saying there are times where Americanism weakens that longing for peace in my own faith. I know 
that we will never have world peace before Jesus comes. I know that there, I don't believe in pacifism. I believe that the strong need to defend the weak. I believe that if I see someone beating someone else up, that nonviolence is not the answer, but that standing in defense of somebody else is the answer. I'm not saying that I'm a pacifist, but I'm saying there have been times where I've been too, too much of a hawk and I haven't sought peace the way that Jesus talks about it. The child is for us. Unto us a child is born. It's, it's for us that Jesus came to bring peace. Peace with God. Peace between people. And his government will ensure peace. His government will ensure righteousness and justice. It says in verse 7, of his greatness and the government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. We don't have a lot of agreement in our country and even within the church on what justice and righteousness looks like. We don't. Let's just be honest about it. I am so thankful that I can at least know and hope and trust that when Jesus establishes his kingdom, that we will know definitively what justice and righteousness looks like. Now, I believe that there's some things that we can know firmly from the word of God right now about justice and righteousness, and that we can live in those things. But all debates will be settled when Jesus is on his throne. He will establish it. For unto us a child is born, and he will bring his peace. And the government will not rest on humans who fail. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will ensure justice, and he will ensure righteousness. I'm so thankful for that. And how is it that he's able to do it? Well, it says in verse 6 that he is both the Father and the Prince. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you're royalty and you're the Father, you're the King. Not the Prince. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We were told in Micah last week that his origin is from ancient times from old. You might remember a couple months ago when, when we were talking about Jesus in the temple and he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, hey, uh, the Messiah, whose son is he? And they said, well, he's, he's the son of David. He's one of the descendants of King David. And Jesus said, well, wait a minute. David said that the Messiah was his Lord. And you don't ever call one of your descendants Lord. How it works, especially in monarchy, is that the previous king or queen always has superior rank. If a ruler ruled before you, they are superior in rank to you. That's how it works. Jesus is saying, how is it that David calls the Messiah his superior? That's not done. That's not how it normally is. And they were silent. They couldn't answer. And the reason is, is that the Messiah would be God himself. That Jesus, God the Son, equally God with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, physically became a human being and entered this world born among us. Now, was he actually born on December 25th? No, probably not. Uh, 
some I've read one scholar who read that he was probably born in uh, in April. I read another scholar who said he was probably born in September. Doesn't matter. Jesus is the Son promised, and the hope for the situation that's bleak is that unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, the, the good news in all of this is that it is the power for this victory does not come from us. Remember I said a minute ago, one of the good things about Christmas, one of the good things about Jesus coming is that the government rests on his shoulders. He's born the king so that it's not on us. Isaiah ends his prophecy by saying this, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That word zeal really struck me this week as I was preparing for this. And I, I did digging. I looked up what does this word mean? Where does it come from? Where else is it used? How can we understand? What is this word zeal? Because zeal means, you know, passion, determination, emotion, right? Why is it that this word is translated zeal in English? It's this Hebrew word, kinah. And we don't have a good translation for it. Some words do not translate well. I am not an expert in any one language. I've studied ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew, and Spanish primarily. I've also done a little bit of study in Latin and a couple other languages just on a bare level. But I've, I have read the study of how languages are translated and formed, and there, there's some very interesting stuff that I've read over the years. Some words just do not translate well. That there is a sense of something, and we would have to find five or six or even ten words to try to describe or encapsulate what this one word in another language is trying to get across. Some things don't translate well. This is one of them. Now what happens in this situation is then you say, well, where else is it used in the Bible? It's kind of a unique word. It's only used in Isaiah. Isaiah uses this word, the zeal, repeatedly, and it's this same phrase, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. By the zeal of God, it will be accomplished over and over and over again. The only time it takes place outside of Isaiah is in the book of 2 Kings, where they're quoting, most likely, Isaiah. But it's a word that denotes deep emotions, deep passion, deep determination. And it comes from God. It's his power, his will, his strength, his determination to see this thing through. I mean, first of all, there's the fact that the child is God himself. No one else could do this. You know, we're going to be studying the book of Job in the new year. Spoiler alert. And Job has this really interesting point where he says, if only somebody could go before God as my advocate and plead my case on my behalf? And the answer is that nobody is worthy of doing that. In the, in the letter to the church in Galatia, the apostle writes that there was nobody who was able to mediate between God and humanity, so God himself became the mediator. That no one was able to save people from their sins. No one was able to deliver people from the brokenness of this world so that God himself became a man. The child born to us 
No one else could do it. It had to be that the child was God. He will be the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I don't know how they handled that man when Isaiah first came out. They're probably like, oh, well, he just means like that or has so powerful. No, he literally meant it. The call to us is to respond in submission. The power of Christmas is that God became a man. The power of what happened that God is born a king is not from us doing the work. I don't have to make him a king. He is one. I don't have to establish his kingdom. He will establish it himself. I don't have to carry the burden on my shoulders. It rests on his shoulders. It will be accomplished not because the people just get together and really try hard. It will be accomplished not because I am really zealous for the Lord. It will be accomplished not because of my will or your will or your determination or my zeal. It's the zeal of the Lord Almighty. We, as people, are role in this is to submit. That's very un-American. I know I just said, uh, you know, I don't want to sound un-American here, but it is. We don't like to submit. We started as a country by overthrowing a king. Right? We, we, have, we do not like to submit. We are by nature non-compliant as a people. We need the power of God in us to submit to him. I could throw out a big theological term, provenient grace, if you wanted to hear that one. But the idea is, is that the Holy Spirit of God works in our hearts and gives us the grace that we need to be able to say yes to Jesus. And it's up to us to choose yes or no, but we do so because God's enabling it. We, have, we need the power of God to give us faith. Do you remember the man Jesus said, do you believe? And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's true of so many of us. We have faith that God can work, but we also see where our faith is lacking. And I don't have enough faith. And I trust that God will do his work and bring about that work of faith. We need God, the power of God to move us forward. Stuck. Hopeless. Not changing. Things are still broken. Things are still a mess. I, I believe in God. I thought things would turn around. Why are things still broken? And I need the power of God to move forward. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish all of these things. The power of God will bring the light into the darkness. The people who, and everything seems desperate. The enemy is approaching. The land is overrun. The king has failed us. Everything seems lost. It is the power of God that accomplishes this miraculous turnaround. And that, to me, is the thing I want to leave you with the most. Christmas is the start. It is not the end. And one of the biggest mistakes people make when they think about Christianity and Christmas is they see Christmas as a pinnacle moment. It is not. Christmas is not the high watermark. Christmas is not the mountaintop. It is the start of the journey. It is where God became a human being Jesus Christ, so that he could go and enact this plan of rescue to bring us into a place of right 
relationship with God himself. Christmas is not the start or the end, it's the start. And so I approach Christmas and, and this Sunday that's coming up as we remember that Jesus was born, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, born of the line of the royal house of David, born fulfilling the, the prophecies concerning the Messiah. But it was the start, it's not the finish. He didn't stay in the manger. He grew up and lived a life in perfection to be the perfect sacrifice to pay the price for my sin, for your sin, for everyone's sin. And it's his death and his resurrection that makes Christmas matter. Because otherwise he's just another baby born. Maybe in more unique circumstances than anyone else, but he's just another baby born. But the man he grows up to be is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. The government will be on his shoulders. And the same zeal of the Lord that will accomplish these things is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of God, the Holy Spirit, that is working in and through the lives of women and men all across the world who call on the name of Jesus. Old men, young girls have, have experienced the power of God. I was 14 years old when I received the Holy Spirit for the first time in a way that you know, we would think of as like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was a young, young person. Other people are, are, are much older and something changes. I, I know somebody who was in their 70s and all of a sudden one day something clicked, something changed and it was like, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit has done something in you and that is incredible. It happens. He's born a king but he's born in king because it's the work of God doing it. It's not of anything you've done. It's not of anything I've done. So as we enter into Christmas, as we enter into Christmas, if you're a believer, rest in the fact that Christmas shows us the power of God working to save the world. Not the power of you or me, not the power of the church, the power of Jesus working to save the world. If you are an unbeliever, the invitation is there. Jesus came and lived among us to rescue people from the darkness, from the hopelessness. And that same offer is available to you, just as it was available to me. And your invitation right now is to believe that the child born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, born divinely and miraculously, died on the cross, having never committed one sin of his own, he died in your place, taking the penalty that you deserved, that I deserved, and that three days later he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses who all said, hey, this guy that we knew to be dead is now alive. And we see where the nails pierced him. We see where the spear pierced his side. We see the risen Jesus. And it is him who we believe in and who we testify of this Christmas and every day. God bless you. Merry Christmas. We'll see you tonight at our Carol and Communion service and throughout the holidays as we gather together.